Hey, Dan. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. do you got there? Oh, hey, uh, Nagana. Listen, I, I brought in my guitar this morning, and good news, I've written a new theme song for the pod. About, we already have the uh, William Tell Overture. I, I think people really love it. Yeah, you know, but it's so predictable. It's so old. And, uh, you know, I thought we needed something, I don't know, a little updated, something that reveals more about who we really are. So I've got something new, and I think you're really going to like it. Hmm. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Okay, lay it on me. I hear that podcast dropping. It's rolling around the bend. I ain't heard a good one since I don't know when. It's Negan and the Lone Ranger from the Winnipeg Free Press. When you hear those trumpets sounding, it's I.O. time again. Well, what do you think? Really something. Yeah, it is something, eh? Not bad. Okay, listen, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna kind of run to the little boys' room before we do the rest of the podcast. I am so pumped about this. I think it's gonna be big. Hell, uh, okay, control room. Uh, Adam, are you there? Hey, Nikon. Uh, did you record all that? Uh, I'm sorry to say yes, I did. Uh, okay, erase it. When he gets back, Tell him there was like some sort of technical malfunction. Tell him that we're not set up to record music and uh, we'll have to try to get in the future. And I don't know, just make some sort of excuse up or something. No worries, Nikon. I've got this. Hey, one more thing. We're never, ever, ever going to talk about this, okay? Talk about what? Right? In the radio production business, if you don't hit record, it's like it never happened. Sweet. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome to episode three of Negon and the Lone Ranger, and we are digging out of a snowmageddon here in Winnipeg Treaty One territory. How's in your response of the first big snow dump of the season? Well, you know, it, it's funny when the first big dump comes, like both from the way people drive to the way they react. It's like they've never seen snow before. Like it, it's like it's. I, I guess it is kind of still kind of a shocking like slap across the face. You know, there's no extended fall. We're in the winter now. Uh, so, you know, I spent, I had uh, Good Friday off, like a lot of people. But good, my Good Friday off uh, was the snow clearing. I'm on a corner lot. So I have a, a, a really big parking pad area that leads out sort of onto the lane in the road. That's like really a lot of clearing. And then uh, I, I will also say this year, I'm going to clean my front sidewalk. This, the, the, the side of my house is cleared by the city uh, pretty, pretty well because we're on an active transportation route. But the front of my house isn't. And I wrote a column saying that uh, people should clear their own sidewalks and stop being <laughs> babies. 
And so like I'm standing outside, you know, yesterday and I'm just like dripping with sweat, right? Like I've been out for an hour and a half and I'm just like, I got my heart rate monitor on, you know, just to make sure I don't keel over. And uh, I'm standing there and I'm looking at that last 50 feet of sidewalk and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, uh, it's not like, you know, I'm super famous or anything, but somebody's going to drive along, take a picture of my snow covered sidewalk and go, hypocrite. So I, I bared down and I went out and cleared the sidewalk. I had the everlasting swamp of my back lane that started uh, where there's just no place for the snow to go. And so it just ends up being piles and piles and piles, like somewhere up to like, you know, five, six feet by the end of the winter. And so that started. Uh, you got to throw right it over after. the fence, man. <laughs> into other people's yards. No, 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 into your yard. Not, <laughs> no, we are not advocating the throwing of snow into other people's yards. That's not what happened. Well, I, I can tell you that, you know, <clears throat> I sent pictures to uh, all my colleagues at Power and Politics because they were like, uh, make sure that you're on time and everything. And I said, well, I'm just digging out of this snow. And, and I was quickly reminded that whenever Winnipeg gets a big dump, Saskatchewan always gets it first. And so no matter what the rivalry lives on, and they told us that, you know, they got a big dump two, three weeks ago. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the story of Saskatchewan, Manitoba. So, uh, really funny story while I'm out uh, shoveling snow. And uh, again, I, you know, I, I built a fence. I had to build a rebuild the fence around my lot and really got to know a lot of people while my fence was down. It was quite an interesting experiment. That's a big sign, by the way. That's a big message about Western living. Oh, no. Well, it's, <laughs> you know, like I, you know, the column that I wrote about it was kind of, you know, the riff off the you know, the, the famous quote about good uh, fences make good neighbors, which is completely misunderstood, right? Because good fences make good neighbors in the original context because uh, this guy who's the voice of the poem uh, works with his neighbor every spring to fix the fence. Good fences make good neighbors. It's not to separate you from your neighbors. But when my fence was down, like, and it was down for a couple of weeks before I was able to get the time to rebuild it, where, you know, everybody's like looking at you. Like, it's like, you know, it's like living on the sidewalk, right? It's kind of interesting. And then when you start to build the fence, everybody wants to stop and have a chat. And so I got to know a lot of people. So one of those, the people that I got to know while building a fence stopped by while I was shoveling snow and uh again like this is on hay street which is active transportation so boy the city came by like first thing in the morning after the snow and and did the sidewalk plowing and um this lovely woman came by and said well if this is what the new city council is like <laughs> it's just immediate the, they rock <laughs> and i you know i kind of said well you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't really think the new mayor and city council had anything to do with this. It's just, it's a, it's the city policy and we're on a good route. And, you know, if you want to thank somebody, you know, thank the, the bureaucrats for, you know, they, they do a lot of work like this, get the job done. They look done. at the forecast. Yeah. Yeah. They get the job done. And she looked at me, she said, <clears throat> you are such an optimist. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, I, like, it's amazing the things you get blamed for as a politician, but you know what city, new city councillors, old city councillors get out there and start taking pictures beside those plowed sidewalks. Cause you've been doing good work. God's work. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. glad they're getting credit for this. Cause certainly none of us were <clears throat> expecting much of a response on our holiday day when the snow dump happened. You know, uh, I had an interesting experience, uh, involved. I have a lot of friends with young uh, infant toddler age children uh, and they you know 
most of them have COVID. Most mm-hmm. of them have had experience with uh, with health or the typical flus, or it's kind of a what they described as a cocktail going around at the mm-hmm. moment of uh, a mixture of COVID, flus, and then the typical kind of things that are going on when st- when uh, students go back to school. And last week, the ERs, the Children's Emergency Hospital here in the city, declared a state of emergency basically and said that the waiting times are through the roof and everyone should think about taking their children elsewhere from the children's hospital. And then at the same time, we saw Premier Heather Stephenson, who has been, who's the head of the premiers, uh, the council, as they say, yeah, and the federation. Yeah. And she's been really the face of this united front of premiers against the federal government for healthcare spending. Uh, it's very interesting, the state of health here in Manitoba, and the fact that the premier is out there uh, talking about the issue of healthcare funding. At the same time, uh, really, the state of healthcare here in Manitoba is at a crisis. It's at a tipping point. Last night, there was sort of a menu of who, how long do you want to wait for your children in emergency rooms? And the lowest amount was four hours. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I think that a, a lot of. I think a lot of people who uh, uh, subject matter experts, scientists, researchers, physicians, you know, really wanted government to create uh, sort of a, a, you know, a mindset in the public that there are definitely times where we're going to need to do some basic things to control the spread of viruses. You know, we did it when COVID was new and it was deadly. And, you know, we have evolved into a, a different kind of threat from uh, from COVID. But I mean, you know, in the United States and Canada, right, like we're having the worst flu outbreak in 40 years and everybody's trying to figure out why that is. And so, you know, a bunch of uh, ER docs and epidemiologists came out uh, recently and said, you know, like we really ought to be doing the simple and least painful things so that we don't have to do the painful things. And that the simplest thing is to wear masks, masks in indoor you know, and, and and doctors of Ontario called back this yeah. week. They they declared that uh, was it. Doctors of Ontario or an association. Doctors Ontario. Yeah, yeah, they declared that we need to put the mask mandate back in Ontario. Of course, at the University of Manitoba, where I work, we've had a mask mandate the whole time. Yeah, which is and, and you know the university should be congratulated because you're swimming upstream against the current of public opinion. Even people that supported masks the first time are like, you know, reluctant. But it's all like the thing that I was always most afraid of is when we started to remove restrictions and we removed the mask mandate in March. Uh, Side note, I got COVID six days after the mask mandate uh, ended after refereeing three double overtime hockey games in like massively uh, filled arenas. Like, no surprise. But anyways, um, there always should have been a comma. Like, yeah, we're getting rid of the mass mandate, comma, but if we need it, we'll bring it back again. Like, the public health is most important. It's going to be real tough to bring and, it back. And we never we never did that. And now, uh, you know, I, like, it, I, I couldn't have imagined that in terms of the protections and, you know, hand hygiene and keeping your distance and not going to work when you're... Uh, you know, when you're super sick, I would have thought we had we had conquered all of that. A lot of it rooted in ignorance. Uh, but you know what? Like we're worse off now. How how did we end up worse off? 
and not taking things seriously anymore. I mean, which is this taking things seriously was what got us to success in the first place. And uh, it's as you know, my daughter just got COVID. Everyone I know has just had COVID for the second time. I mean, it's it's a real state of affairs here. And it's um, in this $200 million investment that the province announced for healthcare in Manitoba really doesn't deal with the jurisdictional issues that the provinces have. They may have a united front against the federal government, but the real problem is that the provinces are, are giving out refund checks to people. And while there's a healthcare crisis, uh, many of them are in situations where they want to give tax breaks to large corporations, large, uh, the you know middle and upper class. At the same time, they also have real problems with jurisdiction. You, you have a big problem on each side of the border of provinces where you can have a doctor or a nurse, critical situation on one side, uh, a suitable situation on the other, and you can't have a doctor travel across that border to do procedures, even in small towns, because it takes six to eight months to get certified in that province. And, and it's a real problem, and the provinces aren't talking, unless they're talking about money. And that's the real challenge here. You know, speaking of sickness, Dan, <laughs> uh, I don't want to really let this topic go past us. Yeah. Uh, but the sickness that is called Twitter is a, uh, a real, there's an infection there. And uh, it seems to be kind of a, uh, a situation in which they are even using the B word of bankruptcy. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's been a lot of talk. Uh, uh, well, it's funny you should say sickness because I, I just read a column in the New York Times this morning uh, about Twitter poisoning, um, and it's the you know the the author of the column is looking at uh, Kanye, Donald Trump, and Elon Musk, and about how you know they're all kind of distinct personalities in in many ways but about how they're all joined by this Twitter sickness, right? Which is this idea that every thought that comes into their mind has to end up on social media, that, that you know, that they think their thoughts are so important that they should change the course uh, of society. And of course, it, it really hurts, this sickness really hurts because, you know, uh, they have a lot of sick thoughts. So, uh, yeah, you know, the thing I'm worried about, as you well know, in the, in the newspaper business and journalism, we disproportionately uh, rely on Twitter uh, more than other. Yeah, I'm almost. I mean, there's no social media platform that even comes close. I mean, Facebook is maybe in the ballpark, but in the way in the high stands. Yeah. I mean, Twitter is the most amount of energy that most of us and our colleagues put into uh i've dedicated myself sometimes most times subconsciously to a very large following on twitter and that's really created this dependence for me mm -hmm. as a writer to get my stuff out and to get my yep. column read uh, because what's happened is is that like how else do you access twenty five thousand people in a hop well it's funny you should say that because in in the event that twitter does collapse in uh under the weight of elon musk's uh arrogance <laughs> um you know we're gonna have to go to another social media platform so i've signed us both up for hip-hop dance lessons so that we can, because uh, we're going TikTok, baby. <laughs> I don't think we can compete with Jagmeet Singh. No, but I think that that's another one that, you know, uh, the worse you are and the, the more shameless you are about demonstrating how bad you are, the more popular you are on TikTok. That, that seems to be what it is. And I can lip sync with the best of them. There's so, nobody that goes yeah. more all in than you. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, 
uh, this week's feature interview. Uh, we uh, were very fortunate uh, to be able to uh, have Isha Khan, who's the president and CEO of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And uh, I'm particularly like glad that we're getting her right now because the, uh, the museum is hosting a big event um, that will take place a few days after this podcast drops, November uh, 18th. Uh, 17th and 18th, actually, called Disrupting Discrimination, Building Culture and Inclusion in, uh, in Sport. Uh, uh, a member of this, the executive leadership team in the National Hockey League, Kim Davis, uh, will be here. Uh, he's, she's going to do an event with our good friend, friend of the podcast, Kevin Chief, and uh, on Friday with youth, and then another event on Saturday, a keynote address. And, you know, the, the, like viewing hockey and discrimination in a human rights contest text. I mean, that is a, in Winnipeg, in which Winnipeg. is yeah. just, I mean, part of the fabric and the culture of the city. You can't get out of it. And, you know, this is in the wake of uh, the Boston Bruin debacle with Mike Mitchell uh, and the fact that they hired this guy or they signed this guy who was openly racist against uh, a high school um, classmate uh, and bullied, and and then you know that that's that person who was bullied was issued a statement, which mm-hmm. then resulted in being kicked off the team. I mean, it it's impossible to not see the uh, the pertinence of this conversation involving hockey. People might wonder, like, what does racism have to do with hockey? And if they do, they haven't been listening because uh, the hockey world's really been ensconced in this conversation. You know, uh, cards on the table, though, you know, we're always supposed to disclose our relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a, an event for the Canadian Museum of Human Rights in Vancouver uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, hosted it. And on one level, you know, like... The, the Museum for Human Rights has gone through a very difficult period mm-hmm. where it's been criticized uh, overtly for not dealing with issues of race, not calling residential schools Within genocide. Own, and, and, and problems with its own staff. And, and then you know, the internal workings of their own staff and, uh, you know, accusations of racism and discrimination. But since Isha Khan's come on board, there's been a real shift in the mm-hmm. museum. Uh, perhaps no surprise, as we've talked about a few times, that you know, they, uh, that it, when when a man creates a problem, there's a woman that comes in and, and cleans up that that situation. And I really think that the previous CEO left a real mess, yeah. and this uh, CEO Isha Khan has just done an incredible job. Uh, and I saw it in Vancouver, and I think it'll happen right here in Winnipeg. Well, uh, let's go now to our conversation with Isha Khan. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Dan Lett on his own, uh, my uh, compatriot in podcasting. Nigan Sinclair is traveling the world, people paying him hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to, uh, to talk about important things. So he couldn't be here. I just, you know, we couldn't afford to compete with that kind of uh, allure. So, but I am joined today, our feature interview, I'm joined by Aisha Khan from the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, where she is the CEO. And thank you very much for making time to come into our little podcast, Dan. Thanks, Dan. I'm clearly also not traveling around the world for hundreds and thousands of dollars because I'm free. No, Here I, I am. No, he, listen, uh, Nigan breathes rarefied air, That's and that's why I'm partnered with him. <laughs> so we can like, only hope one we, day, that's, right? One day, that's right. Um, so, uh, you know, like... It's very hard to narrow down uh, exactly what I want to talk to you about because there's so much stuff that I want to talk to you about. But I will bring up the fact that very quietly, and I don't remember 
a news release or an invitation to a party or anything that you very quietly celebrated your second anniversary at the museum in August? I did. Okay. Well, and it was very quiet. Had to kind of remind a couple people, hey, it's been two years. <laughs> so no, no, no streamers, no small cake? No streamers. Just, wow, two years. Sometimes feels like four months, sometimes feels like six years. It, it really, it, it probably, I mean, with the pandemic and everything, uh, it probably, yeah, like it probably feels like both. I mean, it's because uh, there, there was a period of, nothing happening at the museum the way there was nothing happening in places that draw people so what would you if you had to describe the last two years what would you sort of say i definitely wouldn't describe it as nothing because while nobody was coming into the museum because we were in shutdowns and all the rest there was so much work going on internally just you know an absolute reset thinking about who we want to be who do we want to how do we want to work who do we work with and then just a lot of honestly, reflection. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that doesn't sound like something you should pay people for. Um, so I should be mindful of that. But but just really thinking about planning. How do we tell human rights stories? What are the stories we need to tell? You also came into the job at a rather tumultuous time uh, in the history of the museum where there had been some concerns expressed about the relationship between management and the employees um, some concern about the the way the museum was uh, internally, let's say, respecting issues of identity and things like that. So, like, what did you find when you got there, and and where do you think you've come from that that those early days? Yeah, like when I came in, if you asked me about three months into the job, which everybody did, how is it? How's it going? What's really going on? I was really, really positive. And I would say, and I think it's because I didn't expect there to be so much internal motivation and desire for change. And there was, uh, which probably is why it's been kind of, um, it's been this incredible journey. When I look back now, I would say, yeah, I mean, all sorts of organizations have problems. Um, they always have, and that was the work I did before I came to the museum, is working with businesses and organizations on discrimination. Um, is it any deeper or more pervasive than it is in other institutions? I, I don't know that it is, and I guess I don't want to reflect on that. What I do know is that we have a commitment to try to change, and there's actually some movement. and. It feels really good. It feels like it's just the work that you do every day. It's a practice and it's not, it's not like behind us and it's not over, um, which is maybe how I felt about the anniversary, right? Like it didn't really mark much other than, oh, I came today and wow, I've had this laptop for two years and it's already getting, you know, uh, getting kind of old. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, the, publicly it's an organization, like an institution with a high profile. It's, connected to government, which is all these added layers of transparency and accountability. I mean, I think for those of us watching the story, you know, there, there was the obvious irony of a, you know, museum that really does aspire to the highest ideals of the way we treat each other, perhaps falling short. Like it's, um, how many, I guess I was trying to figure a way of asking this question, but so how many people uh, at the museum now 
uh, I don't need mm-hmm. an exact number, were there two years ago. And, and how have they reflected on, I guess they, they have to be a big part. If there's going to be change, the people who were there when you came in have to be a big part of that change. Yeah. Like when I walked in the door um, or in those early days, everyone... I felt, whether it was real or not, this pressure to clean house, you know, get rid of all the people who'd been there and bring in a bunch of new people. And I was very, very deliberate in not wanting to do that. Um, So, you know, let's work with the people that we have. And that said, people have come and gone and I have brought in lots of, uh, yeah, lots of new people um were fantastic and they just change you need a mixture right of both to create that environment you need for change but i will say it's the people who in the early days were the ones who you know sent me confidential emails came and asked to speak with me we had private meetings um all through shutdown you know those zoom calls or or teams meetings where they'd really openly share what because i always just said look what do you want me to do what do you think i need to think about um, those are the people now who say things have changed so drastically um, and that it feels different. And I actually, I had someone, um, was an Indigenous knowledge keeper who we work with, say to me the other day, the energy in this building is different. The wow. spirit of this building is different. And I really took it to heart because I feel it, but to have someone else remark on it, and in particular, Lee, when she did, it it really meant something. Well, I suppose that that marks the two-year period when you hear feedback like that. That's a good so. reward. Um, the museum, um, you know, like at this stage of my career, you know, I, I shouldn't try to hide the fact that I'm a big fan. I was the big fan of uh, the idea. I've been a big fan of the execution, um, you know, from the building itself to the programming. Um, I think what's you know, what's fascinating to me is that, like, and I get all the news releases, and and, and I have been in to see mm. many of the special exhibits. I mean, it's kind of a uh, finger on the pulse of of what's going on in the world in, in human rights. Like, you, you certainly, you do get a trip around the globe when you go in uh, and see the exhibits. The state of the world right now, uh, and I've been trying to understand this myself, it, it, there's certainly... Uh, as far as it can be measured empirically, there seems to be a feeling that there is, that hate and all of its ugly offshoots is on the rise. That uh, discrimination, uh, it's gone from sort of a in the closet kind of shameful thing. And now people are expressing it as a political ideology, uh, particularly in the country to our immediate south, but not exclusively. What uh, this is, this is like the really great journalist question. Um, you're going to say something brilliant and no one heard my stupid question normally. <laughs> Podcast. Damn. What do you they think th- about that? Yeah, that's exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> so what do you think's going on here? Like, is it, I think I, I, in the questions that I sent, you know, to, to Rory, your, your, uh, sidekick there, it, it was, the idea was like, is, is, is hate a pendulum, uh, that, you know, where the momentum swings from tolerance to intolerance and that's our destiny as a, as a, you know, as human beings. Honestly, um, and I talked about this with Rory, who would never call himself my sidekick. Oh, I'm um, no, no, but, uh, <laughs> um, I don't think it is a pendulum. I think, um, and I, you know, when people say hate is on the rise, I would say reported hate crimes are on the rise. Uh, note reported. Um, because I think hate's always been there. 
And I think we are just, uh, and I use the big we, are listening for it or paying attention to it in a way that we hadn't before. And I also say, particularly in, you know, the quote unquote Western world, um, we see hate like we didn't before because we've been forced to or learned or evolved to pay attention to it. But it's always been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I don't think it's a pendulum. I think we're moving. And I think the fact that people are paying more attention to it and we'd have this conversation, mm-hmm. uh, we'd report on things, we'd, um, you know, kids in school would be talking about this stuff means that we're advancing. To me, it's far more a journey than it is, um, you know, pendulum kind of suggests you swing back to where you were before. Um in some measure, and I, I don't think so. I feel like we're going in the right direction. I mean, I think the the alarming, worrisome part for me, and and nothing, the, the correspondence that comes to me through social media and my email account is by no means an accurate measure of the state <laughs> right. of society. But, you know, I do notice, I do notice changes, and in, in certainly since the pandemic, you know, that um, kind of triggered um you know a, a like an angry response to restrictions and to vaccines and things like that what i see now is um you know a, an angry response where people who are saying hateful or really ugly things uh are defending their right to say them and in fact, like, and I, not very effectively, but turning the table. So, you know, no, 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 I'm not the hater. You're the hater. You hate me because I don't like gay people or I don't like people of color or whatever. So, you know, you're hating, you're a hater. And I, you know, I'm not saying that that's a brand new, uh, sort of debating point, but it, you know, it really like it's worked its way into mainstream politics. And, and that's where I become really concerned is, um, you know, when people who seek higher office in this and other countries talk like that, you know, we have a far right government in, in Italy right now. We have far right governments and parties rising a- across Europe. And this is, is kind of that. No, no, no. This is just what I believe. This is a deeply held belief. You can't attack me for this if I believe that. So if it's if we're on the journey, <laughs> hmm. what are we on the bumpier part of the journey right now? Is that the like we got to go over the the bumpy parts to get to the smoother parts? I don't know because I don't know where the journey. I know I know we're going somewhere, and I just I, I can't see the whole picture yet, right? Um, but I think I mean you say a couple of things that are sort of strike me. Um, absolutely it feels like there is more space for hate and that ability, I don't know if it's an ability, but we're creating space to talk about it. You know, you're the hater, no, you're the hater. But I actually think that, you know, discrimination, hate in the way that we talk about it from a human rights perspective is so much more nuanced than people want to give space for. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to just throw it out, like I have my rights and so therefore, you know, you can't tell me what to do or what to think. Um, and yet the conversation that's been happening underneath, which I think has been there all along, which is for dignity and rights and equality of opportunity, it is nuanced. And so I don't know that we're there fully embracing that. There are now pockets of people who are, you know, dipping down into that conversation. Like, oh, I understand we need truth before reconciliation or, 
oh, I understand what colonialism actually did and, ha- and the impacts. The people who are kind of living on the surface of talking about, I have my rights and you can't tell me what to do, it's still a pretty simplistic conversation that doesn't actually touch on the issues I think we need to. Mm-hmm. I mean, it for sure scratches them and, and, and you know, brings them to the surface, but doesn't give us the 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 entry point to actually talk about the real issue you know about worth or dignity or how you want to treat your fellow humans you mentioned uh the word nuanced and um and that uh, allows me an elegant pivot i guess i'm not supposed to admit that it's a pivot to a slightly <laughs> different topic but the uh <laughs> But the um, are you uh, nuancing right now? Yeah, I'm nuancing. Oh, you're that's segueing. Right. Yeah, well, thanks that's for right. telling me so. Okay, that's right. Good. Um, so uh, you guys held an event in October, I believe, uh, on uh, attitudes toward the hijab. And mm-hmm. now this, this for me, and partly through personal experience, is this is uh, an issue that uh, lays bare the nuances of a human rights discussion. So I'm going to go back to 2015. When the Conservative Party um, decided to make uh, the hijab and uh, religious uh, images and head coverings and cultural practices an election issue. And, um, you know, I remember Stephen Harper, you know, trying to parlay this into the Conservative government championing uh, it was a woman's issue we were championing the cause of women and i and i was listening to him in the car and i'm driving along and as i frequently do i turned to my wife and said do you buy that as a woman's issue and uh she looked at me and said yeah you know it doesn't really matter what he says because he shouldn't be telling women what they should or shouldn't be wearing on their heads exactly and i you know i i don't for any uh of our six to eight listeners uh, who who may have already figured. <laughs> Twelve yeah, after uh, this nuanced after discussion this one. we're having, yes. Um, like for those people who always saw that and always figured it out, like, you know, uh, good for you. Like I think um, uh, for me, it was it was kind of a moment, it was a learning moment to kind of say, like there was the fore, like hand to the forehead, of course, you know, that's what it is. And uh, so when you did this event, like it, it, so, and I wasn't able to go, mm-hmm. but tell me what, like what happened at the event and how people reacted to it. And cause I, I think you, you've hit on the, one of the ultimate stories that requires nuance. Well, we wanted to do, <clears throat> we wanted to do something about women and women's rights and uh you know we saw things what's happening in the states around reproductive rights we saw the protests in iran and then throughout the world and at the center of it was the hijab and so um you know a community partner reached out and said you know we should do this event and the cmhr got behind it because we should be talking about this and we should be talking about um a woman's right to control her own body which to me is what this really is. Um, when I think about the hijab conversation, though, I mean, and, you know, as a Muslim woman, I have all sorts of my own mm-hmm. thoughts about what, what, what I think about why we're still talking about this, why it matters. Um, when I elevate, perhaps, to looking at it from a human rights perspective, it seems so odd to me that... So I shouldn't say it's odd. People seem to look at the hijab as this thing they don't understand. 
right? The veil. It has all this somewhat romantic and other kind of thing around it. And as colonial or Western societies look at it as this, you know, sign of oppression. You talk to many women, and, and not all, but many women will say, this actually gives me freedom. I choose to wear this and I feel good that I want to wear this. Depending on the cultural context and families and all of that, it's different. But at the end of the day, it's the same idea that why should society tell anyone what to wear? Mm -hmm. Like when you gave it, you know, talked about it in the context of that 2015 law and all the work that was going on around it, I mean, it seemed absurd, mm -hmm. right? But I think when I think about that event and the the idea that we're trying to build understanding and, you know, human right, the CMHR sort of wants to be this place for dialogue and mm -hmm. reflection. I don't think you get to the place of being able to advocate for your fellow humans until you feel some connection. And so you actually under, build some understanding. And I think we were at that event, we're still building understanding about what the hijab even is. Why do people even wear it? Mm -hmm. um, but there was, a, there was a, a speaker who stood up from the audience from Iran um, and she talked about what's going on there. And she said, this isn't, you know, it's great to talk about the hijab in Canada, but don't liken that to the hijab in Iran. That's a completely different story with a military mm -hmm. regime and, and all that. So again, a pretty nuanced conversation. Well, I, I mean, you know, if like I, I've been fortunate enough that I, I, I traveled uh, extensively in Sudan, which kind of purports to, you know, to be right. an Islamic Republic, but it's more nuanced than that for sure. Um, and, you know, we met a lot of people, a lot of women, a lot of men in the civil service and in business. And, you know, after a very short period of time, it wasn't unusual to, to meet a woman who is the head of a large business enterprise, uh, you know, wearing gloves, you know, not shaking hands, mm -hmm. uh, wearing some form of head covering. And, uh, yeah, like, so I think that if you have that advantage, you can kind of see the variety of different expressions. Unfortunately, you know, we get to hear about imprisonment and torture and execution and so i think it do you think that i mean an event like this uh, i mean it would be good to expose the content of an event like this to people who don't understand the nuances how do you uh how or are you making plans to kind of continue the conversation in a way that might expose people who come to the museum yeah i mean i think often that the people that we need to reach you try to do the strategic planning kind of stuff, like who's your audience? It would be easy to say our audience is people who care about human rights. Mm -hmm. But if you challenge that, you think actually our audience is people who don't even ever think about human rights. Those are the people who you want to touch with your programs or your events or exhibitions. Um, we know that we need to continue conversations about women's rights, The you know, wearing the hijab, Yes, maybe, certainly what's going on in Iran and how that is used to oppress women and the human rights impacts um, and in other countries around the world. But I think um, the goal really is to have a place to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were people who came genuinely just to learn. Mm -hmm. What is it? What's the difference between a hijab and a niqab? What are people talking about? Why do people wear it? Do they feel like they're forced to? Mm -hmm. And so even seeing three different women on the panel um, of different ages, um, two wearing a hijab and one not, 
I think that was enlightening for some. Mm. Um, it's like, uh, I, I really believe if we just build some relationships with different people who are different than us is when we get to actually have some human rights um, movement. Yeah, no, no, for right? sure. You know, the other, you've, and uh, this interview takes place uh, a few days before another big event at the museum, um, which is one that uh, partly connects to something that's uh, very important in my life, which is hockey. I mean, it's about hockey, but not about hockey. Right. Um, but uh, the museum is going to host a series of events with uh, Kim Davis, who's a member of the uh, executive leadership team at the National Hockey League. She's the senior vice president of social impact growth initiatives and legislative affairs. Um, and as I understand, she's doing events on Wednesday and Thursday. Okay. Yeah, this week. Um, and, you know, it, it's uh, – well, the question I want to ask you is is – were you cognizant of the fact that you were inviting an NHL executive into Canada to talk about social impact issues at a time when the social impact of hockey itself is kind of, you know, uh, part of the national debate? So when we asked Kim Davis to um, to speak at, uh, you know, this fundraiser, fundraising gala that we were having and on a youth event, we knew that she's doing amazing things around inclusion and sport um, in, uh, elevating the conversation around diversity in sport. So we knew that was important, um, and we were so excited to get her. We know now more than ever <laughs> that that's a timely conversation. Mm -hmm. And so it just made us um, focus even more that this is exactly the time to have a conversation about inclusion, human rights, discrimination in sport in sport and i use that as this big thing like it's a religion right mm -hmm. um so was i cognizant um i mean we knew there was an issue to talk about even before the events that have led up to um uh today um or the awareness that we have today that we didn't have when we first asked her yeah i, I mean it's really it's hard to look at any professional sport uh right now and not see the way you know, the discussion of the athletes and the games and the standings, it's bled out now into, you know, what effect they have on the society, what what kinds of role models are you creating, that kind of thing. The um I, I guess I'm wondering what what you think hockey people might get from a discussion like this. Uh because, I mean, it's what I have sort of been thinking about ever since I saw the news release. As an on-ice official, I'm lamentably exposed to the raw effluent of hockey. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that gets said and done on the ice that uh, is pretty objectionable, and, but it's punished. But it never really, there's no accountability or transparency to, to that that's going on. So I wonder how you think hockey people might react to an event like this. Okay, so first of all, I have to tell you, I am the lousiest professional sports watcher, yeah. keeper upper there is. You probably get so much more done in your life um, than I do, though. No, I don't know. You know. I'm spilling it with other stuff. But no. I have to put that out there. Okay. So I surely can't say what hockey people will get out of it. But, I mean, I can make all those generalizations about hockey people. And, you know, as a hockey mom, when I had a kid playing girls hockey for a while, um, and I will say that there's, I think that there is a genuine willingness 
to have this conversation. I mean, we saw that, right, with the events that have happened more recently that are in the news. You see the NHL speaking out. You see, like, there is a genuine desire to acknowledge that what is going on isn't how it ought to be. So I think that people will react positively in that way. I think, though, if you're a real hockey person, whatever that means, Mm -hmm. somewhere there it'll get uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. There'll be a defensiveness just the way that there is with anything that kind mm-hmm. of starts to tell us, you know, the thing we're doing and like hockey's a religion in this country, really, mm-hmm. you know, for a secular state and, and like other countries as well. We've kind of put all of that into sport in yeah. so many ways. And so it still starts to grind us a little bit when it feels like what we're doing, what we believe in is maybe not what we thought it was or the people who we like idolize or or even just you know, promote as these fantastic heroes maybe aren't what we thought. So I think it might get uncomfortable. I don't know mm-hmm. that this conversation will. Yeah. But I think the conversations that happen in the the car ride home or the next day or people who watch the virtual gala will, I think, have those conversations. But honestly, that's, that's the point. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of doing it. Yeah, I think making people uncomfortable, uh, I kind of sometimes think that's what I do professionally. Uh, my bosses frequently tells me that uh, my column is not my catharsis. Right. Um, which I respectfully disagree with uh, <laughs> on occasion. But it, I think it is, um, uh, like, it, it. it's fascinating for me to think of the opportunity, even if there isn't a direct overlap, but to, to have a discussion about human rights in the broadest possible sense, connected to something that's so, you know, in, in, in embedded, uh, and, you know, maybe not as much as it was when I was uh, a wee lad first playing hockey, but, you know, like we, we take something for granted that it's there and it's a good thing. And then all of a sudden, we learn that it's not necessarily the good thing that we thought it is. But I mean, but that all sports, uh, gymnastics, bobsleigh, mm-hmm. wrestling, I don't know of a top sport, elite level sport in this country that hasn't been touched by, by scandal is, is the, the human, like uh, sports through a human rights lens. Can you see that as an exhibit or a, a subject to be dealt with at the museum? Because yeah. if you say yes, then we've made news. I'm going to well, call the, my editor right away. No, sorry. Yeah. I think <clears throat> that sport is just another frame for people who gather, mm-hmm. right? So we talk about the workplace. We talk about businesses and employers and all the things that go on there from a human rights perspective. Well, sport is just another place where people gather and inter- humans interact with each other. Um, and so if you look at it that way, of course, there are human rights stories. You know, there's there's sexual harassment, there's sexual abuse, there's um, gender-based violence, there's racism, homophobia, all those things, transphobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just, it's just another way of looking, configuring how he, a bunch of humans interacting with each other who bring all of their own biases, all their own um, hate. Mm-hmm when they have it, ignorance uh, together. Um, And so for sure there's a story to be told. And we can look at, you know, stories of the history of the Olympics and we can look at um, across, I think, almost every sport. Mm -hmm. You know, we as I think, when we think about the headlines, there's a whole bunch even just in the last while, but that's just a bigger reflection. It just mirrors what's going on in society. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I I have all these stories that I tell from people because I tore down my fence. I live in a corner lot and then rebuilt the fence. And in the process of rebuilding the fence, I got to know all my neighbors a lot better. Nice. And, you know, because I was having three, four decent conversations every hour, which is why it took me like four weeks to build the fence. But I, I did have a young guy uh, come by uh, with his son and uh, we were chatting and he knew that I worked for the free press and that I write about hockey every once in a while. And he said, you know, like he's so keen to play and whatever. And I just don't know. And it kind of broke my heart a little bit because, you know, like, I think you have to be discerning as a parent, like of what you're exposing your kids to. Uh, the other part of it, though, is that I don't know where you would go and what you would do, uh, you know, to get to create recreational or uh, sports activities for your kids where you're not, you know, you're accepting a certain amount of risk that you're not maybe not going to be exposed to the right people all the time, just the way you are in, in the school system, quite frankly, like, cause we have no ability really to choose who our kids teachers are. So, you know, but it did, it, it did kind of, it hit me kind of deep cause I was thinking, wow, you know, like uh, maybe this is something hockey doesn't come back from uh, even though it's really just hockey's turn uh, for this kind of uh, accountability. When people go through the museum, and uh, it's obvious, um, you know, and I know people who work for the museum, you know, people get so much more than they were bargaining for. Um, I mean, some people know exactly what they're getting, but a lot of people don't. And it's kind of a, is, is that that moment of realization, which I'll connect to my, my neighbor, was having this, this moment of reflection. Is that, is that like a, a natural stage? in the learning process to maybe like to feel the pain uh, of what hmm. you see first. And then from there, we hope you move on to greater understanding. I mean, I don't know if I'm the, uh, you know, able to sort of pontificate on it, but I do know cause I've seen it so many times in our museum and other human rights work I did have done in my career that you have to feel it you have to feel touched by the issue. And we feel most touched by an issue when we can relate to it because we start imagining mm -hmm. it's our kid or our dad or our neighbor or whatever it is. And then we feel something and then that's sort of that spark that then inspires you to perhaps advocate or maybe just even reflect first and then mm -hmm. advocate. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, in terms of is it hockey's turn or is it turn in sport? I don't know if there's turns. I think it's been there all mm -hmm. along, right? It's mm -hmm. just, it's your turn to be in the spotlight. And it's your, like you said, it's your accountability. Like now, what are you going to do when this is served to you on a platter? So you've got a choice. Um, and, you know, I think about it when I reflect on the, the, the CMHR and sort of the public, um, uh, the very public uh, issues that that we had just around the time that I joined, you know, I said like I know this is going on in businesses and organizations all over the place, and mm -hmm. people had said to me like, "We know that you're in the headlines, but we all have this stuff going on, and yeah. so we're kind of watching to see what you'll do." Um, so I mean, I guess we take our turn being public about it, but to me, all this work around human rights work essentially or equity work however you look at it it's quiet work mm. that 
you might show up in the headlines tomorrow, but your job is to do it every day in your in your sporting organization, you know, or your museum, or your museum, mm. um, or at your newspaper, wherever oh, you so. may be, <laughs> right? Like, no, no, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, wow. You, you've been a really good sport by allowing me to draw you into a conversation on hockey. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me anything. I could, like. No, I think, I think you know, because I, I mean, I think that idea that um, every institution, uh, you know, has its moment of reckoning. Uh, and, and I think you know. also, Dan, it's, it's – um, when we think about institutions and their reckoning, you also have to acknowledge they have power within them. There's power balances in those institutions. Mm -hmm. And so just think of sport and the money in it and the people and the heroism and all of that. There's so much power. So anything that kind of um, tries to disrupt that, pokes at it, um, that's why we have these moments of reckoning. I mean, nobody is... is uh, or, or that I know of, we're not talking about lesser known sports and what's going on in uh, in many other areas of sport because uh, it doesn't matter to us as much, right? We don't, we're not season ticket holders mm -hmm. and we don't have money and, you know, contracts and, and all of those things for, yeah. so. We're, we're, uh, we're grilling the sacred cow on this <laughs> one, you know. Um, Aisha Khan, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Uh, I think I can speak for Nagan and say big fans of the museum, uh, and, uh, the work that you're doing there. And I've diarized October or August of, uh, two more years from now. So we can, <laughs> we'll you. have you back and we'll do like a big four year celebration. <laughs> I expect streamers uh, for sure. Streamers and yeah. pastries or something. Thank you very much again. Thank you. Quay, hello. My name is Pam Palmiter. I'm a Mi'kmaq lawyer, professor, activist, and content creator from Eel River Bar First Nation. You are listening to The Storytellers. I would like to share with you a story about one of the craziest days I ever had trying to cram all of my work into 24 hours. And since CSIS may be listening to this broadcast, the names, dates, times, and locations are not included in this story so as to protect the innocent. So this day was back during the height of the Idle No More protests. Idle No More was the historic social movement led by Indigenous women, which exploded into an organic, nationwide protest movement, which lasted for months. Indigenous peoples engaged in teach-ins, round dances, protests, and marches, trying to educate our communities and the public about the threats posed by the Conservative government. Conservatives were threatening Indigenous rights, environmental protections and social supports, as well as curtailing basic democratic principles, rights and freedoms. Obviously, we could not allow this to continue. So grassroots Indigenous peoples, together with our Canadian allies, stood together to make our voices heard. On one of those days, I flew to a First Nation to stand in solidarity with them as they engaged in round two of their actions on the ground, protesting abuses by one of the many transnational corporations that were extracting their resources, all without the free, prior and informed consent of the First Nation and in violation of their treaty rights. So we all gathered together early in the morning, packed our bannock and bologna sandwiches, and set off for the location. Some members of the group set up a protest at the entrance to the location, while others hung back in order to keep an eye out for the company's private security. 
They had been known to follow and harass indigenous peoples in the past. The protest was going on for hours with elders cooking fish and telling stories and the younger folks drumming, singing, and holding up signs while videos were recorded for social media. All of a sudden, we could see private security in the distance, so we raced to the main protest to ensure their safety in numbers. I can remember thinking how awful it was that we were put in this position. It was surreal. It felt like a war was being waged against us. Despite complaints by the company, the protest continued on for a few more hours, and then everyone left to prepare for round three on another day. I flew back home, and while on the plane, drafted my speech for a teach-in that was happening later that evening at a different First Nation. I arrived just in time to teach my class. The students always looked forward to getting updated about Idle No More actions happening across the country and were super pumped to hear about that day's actions. So while I was exhausted, their enthusiasm to learn more about Indigenous rights and how they can support us was very uplifting. And I needed that boost of inspiration because after class, I had to drive to the other First Nation and make a presentation on Idle No More. As soon as I arrived, I was greeted by a process server who served me with legal documents from the very same extractive corporation we had been protesting earlier that morning. This was perfect content for the presentation I had to give that First Nation because it was all about how governments and industry violate our Indigenous rights, as well as how governments and industries spend millions to subdue our resistance by surveilling us or sending in the big guns. Quite literally cops or courts. As a joke, I told the crowd that were gathered in the community center that undercover law enforcement are obligated to identify themselves if asked. And to our surprise, but not surprise, two officers identified themselves. It was one of those funny but not funny moments that we as Native people often joke about. So after this incredibly long day, I drove back home and saw that one of the media outlets had sent me a reminder text that my opt-ed was due by 6 a.m. the next day. I don't even remember what I wrote, but the next day, the opt-ed was published. This is the life of Indigenous peoples actively engaged in resistance to genocidal laws, policies, and practices that threaten our lands, waters, and people. It is all-consuming. Imagine if our basic human rights were respected. We could put all of our efforts into nation-building or language revitalization instead of defending ourselves from the ongoing war waged against us. Imagine! The last issue we want to talk about today is the ongoing concern and efforts being made to resolve, I guess, to, to learn more uh, about unmarked graves at uh, former residential school sites. Um, I mean, I think it's a story that's really captured the imagination of the entire country and not just the Indigenous population. But, you know, as we saw with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on residential schools, you know, there are growing pains with this process. Recently, there was a story in the Globe and Mail which detailed concerns from uh, some of the people that are acting as the liaison between families of former residential school uh, residents and uh, and government that um, of all the money and assistance and pledges of support that the government is providing, they're apparently uh, the resources are only to be used to locate the graves. There's no money available for exhuming 
or examining the bodies and possibly testing for DNA. And, you know, again, like I know, uh, you know, obviously your father was the uh, commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And, you know, you were, you were a, a passionate advocate uh, on the need to resolve some of these issues. Where, like, what exactly is going on here? So Kimberly Murray, who is the special interlocutor on this issue, appointed by the federal government, uh, since the discovery of 215, and I say discovery loosely, I mean, Indigenous people certainly knew that their children and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters were missing, but they didn't know where. And the uh, the uncovering of 215 unmarked graves uh, found through ground penetrating radar at Kamloops, and then subsequently several other communities, Cowasis, and you know, right here in Manitoba in Brandon, uh, I wrote a column about that. Uh, all the different work that researchers were doing to uncover the the fact that you know children's graves were at a site that had been sold by the city, and now a, a trailer park is on top of those that grave site. Uh, there's been this ongoing move to try to figure out who is in those graves, what communities have been impacted, and then for the most part, to try to give some kind of sense of closure to tell families where their loved ones are, which is the most humane and human thing that could be done. But whenever Indigenous people's humanity is up uh, for conversation, it's always a debate. Uh, it's, you know, any other group anywhere in the world, really, uh, people would be talking about empathy and the importance of thinking of Indigenous peoples and how they're feeling. And this funding that has been provided uh, is not only only uh, a few drops in the bucket for the larger scope of the issue, but also is very limiting in that it doesn't provide some of the key issues that are going to be required going forward. And, and they talked about this in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They said that it wasn't just about uh, finding the unmarked graves, but also finding who is in those graves. And th many people, I think, thought that the golden ticket uh, the golden information of where those children and who they were mm -hmm. would be in those church records. But as was found this week, uh, Kimberly Murray was talking about the fact that there's, you know, those church records are very incomplete. And when they are getting big dumps of information, which the National Tr Center for Truth and Reconciliation, located right here in Manitoba Treaty 1, uh, is just not giving the answers that are needed and required. And so... This issue will be going on for decades. It, it will not be solved easily. So, I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack uh, in getting from where we are now to possibly a resolution for some of the families. But, um, you know, are we talking about a lack of resources, a lack of commitment, um, an institutional reluctance to, you know, to, to bring more well, burden you know, on the it, government? It's will. It's really will. Uh, and what I mean by that is today, right now, there are 88 communities searching in unmarked grave, like fully legitimate unmarked grave sites that they want to know who's in them. Because in some cases, they aren't just children. They're also members of the community. They're also sometimes are people who worked in the schools, but they are majority children, undoubtedly. Um, because these places were places full of tuberculosis, uh, full of a great deal of abuse and violence, murder. And so uh, being able to answer those questions will be a question of will. How long is Canada willing to uh, care about this issue? 
uh, beyond just wearing an orange shirt on September 30th. Mm. And and when the rubber hits the road, will you know the few hundreds of millions of dollars, which seem like such a large amount of money, but spread it over 88 communities, ends up being just a few drops in a very big bucket. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast, and you know, I think we 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 do probably have to recognize that there will be some hard limitations uh, on this process. Uh, you know, certainly the exhuming and and the uh, um, uh, you know examination and testing DNA testing of hundred year old graves. Um, you know, I think that's going to stretch science to the limit, uh, you know, or stretch it to its limits. But I think the, you know, like as somebody who hasn't followed the issue as closely as you, I was kind of shocked that that wasn't part of the programming. And I think that's, it, that's the part, like in terms of the will, so there's $220 million or whatever provided by the federal government. And then there's more money that certain provinces have provided, but the money is uh, expressly not to be used for exhuming and examining the graves. And I, I kind of felt like it was bait and switch, you know, like I, I kind of thought that in, you know, inside I was going, okay, well, that's a good first step, you know, like good on governments, plural, for doing that. And then all of a sudden, you know, Kimberly Murray comes out and says, oh, yeah, like we can't use any of the money. To, to exhume the body, we can just or like, you for know. legal costs. Yeah, that's and, a, that and was that's, a big one. That's the other part of it. I think that uh, communities have a right when they find information to uh, act on that information, and particularly involving the abuse of children. Uh, this is not something that's covered by the TRC. This is something in which families, uh, any family anywhere, if a child was in the care of someone else and that child was harmed. Uh, that child was mistreated, that child was murdered, uh, there is cost associated. I mean, that's the way justice works in this country. And so the fact that this funding is not to be used in any way for legal costs uh, is really a message to First Nations community that we really want the monument there. We really want the plaque, but we really don't want any other actions taken forth, especially against the churches, who, by the way, you know, the, the Catholic Church is still resisting the millions and millions of dollars that they are owing to survivors and the fact that Stephen Harper's government that came out just recently that Stephen Harper's government signed off on forgiving as if they had any right to do so forgiving the Catholic Church uh, on their obligations has just been um, it, it's it, it's baffling but it's also very unsurprising you know there's a really there's a movement in the country I think that the country uh, in many ways is becoming distracted by the issues at hand in residential schools. And you can see that in the St. Anne's residential school decision that the, uh, the, the Supreme Court decided on the issue of records when it came to the St. Anne's residential school. Um, you know, the records that were kept during the TRC was uh, talking about abuse, talking about the ways in which, but the, the, the way that the settlement agreement worked was that the that would only be held for a certain amount of time. And if they couldn't get consent of survivors, that those records would be destroyed. Uh, there is a, a move in the country to think this is a done issue and to see this as, as a completed issue, that, that those records can be destroyed. And then, uh, you know, all we have to do is wear orange shirts and march a little bit on September 30th. And well, somehow this will be all okay. Uh, the funding, you know, 
came in this week for the new center for national, the new National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, which is on the campus of the University of Manitoba. Uh, and during that uh, groundbreaking ceremony that just happened right here, uh, uh, my father and then you know the director Stephanie Scott of the National Center were both talking about the um, reemergence of residential school denialism. And that there's many in the country who still continue to deny the atrocities that happened at the schools. Those who want to make the argument that the schools were altogether as much good as bad. Well-meaning. And yeah. the, the, the movement, I think, in the country is that they think this is a done issue. And that's why I think it's important that we talk about it here and elsewhere, that this is not a done issue. And, you know, 88 communities can't be argued with that they are right now searching for their sons or daughters in the earth right beside their territory. Yeah. I mean, whenever um, I touch on this subject and, and I've written several times about the unmarked graves um, and, and how for me, uh, you know, as a journalist, but also kind of, you know, it's hard not to re refract this through my experience as a parent as well. The thing, you know, that struck me the most was, um, the fact that e even in instances where a child may have succumbed to a disease uh, or some other misfortune that wasn't malicious, um, you know, the, the, they were buried in unmarked graves. And this is the kicker for me. And there was no attempt to notify the family of the death of the child. And that is such a dehumanizing aspect of this that like anybody who has kids, anybody who knows anybody who has kids, to think that a child could die and there was so little concern or possibly shame or possibly, you know, they or anyone held responsible or yeah, or accountability that they wouldn't take the time to notify the family that the child had died. So what you're talking about is like children disappearing and uh, the family's unable to get any answers. You know, as a journalist, uh, you know, we live in a world where we like to think we know a little bit enough about everything that nothing surprises us anymore. And, you know, you've traveled all over the world and talked to people about similar experiences. I've certainly, I've been all over the world and I've, I've seen people uh, struggling and living with the, the uh, uh, you know, the wake and destruction of genocide and war and things like that. And, you know, I thought I'd kind of seen it and done it all. And, I you know, when your dad's report came out and I read right there about the uh, about unmarked graves, uh, it was like a cold slap across the face that like, how could we not have known more? How could indigenous people have known so much about the unmarked graves and somehow and nobody listened and, and you know so and and so when did the when did the uh, the report come out that your the TRC report came out in 20, 2015. 2015. The other thing that stuns me is that five years before this became an issue of national discussion and concern, you know until an actual unmarked like a large unmarked gravesite was found. But it's there. It's in the report. And I remember I remember various historians who somehow still find have agency with some of the national newspapers and are allowed to write op-ed pieces talking about the misrepresentation of the residential school system. Like how like can anybody explain five years before the action plan was launched? Like 
you know, anybody who's afraid of assuming the shame and guilt of a previous generation by acknowledging what went on, better know now that that you know we're we're actually doubling down on the on the crimes by you know trying to find the the most expedient way uh, of of reducing it to a once a year uh, you know uh, ceremony and and the uh, the movement. Uh, that came out on, you know, certain national newspaper uh, to say, well, where's the bodies? Show me the bodies. The feds won't pay for finding the bodies. Uh, Communities shouldn't have to dig up their own children. And then on top of it is we know that the atrocities have happened. You don't have to question that the atrocities happened. We have firsthand witnesses, both those who worked in the schools and those who attended the schools. Why is that not enough to believe that this is a national issue and to dedicate the willpower to try to give survivors and their families and communities, all of whom we are apparently supposed to be all in this together, uh, why is it that we're debating that? And this is probably the most angering and upsetting thing of it all. And uh, not that I wanted to end this week talking about it, but it, it really is evidence that this is the tone where we're that's set. And, that, you know, when we continue to let those who uh, openly outright deny on the front cover of newspapers, uh, we're not helping. We're not, we're doing any, we're doing nothing but sowing the seeds of discontent on an issue that really should be moving forward in a much faster way. So uh, do we... Do we honestly have any opportunity? Like, is there any reason for optimism that, uh, you know, possibly from the the strong messages coming from the interlocutor on this uh, or others that, um, you know, we're going to regroup? Like, we there certainly has been progress. We've, we've made uh, an attempt to go through and identify more of these sites across the, the country. Does anybody believe that's a first step? Well, we're far beyond the first yeah. step stuff. Yeah. And, and what we are is uh, we are in a situation where the first time in history uh, we have a critical mass of Indigenous peoples in mainstream institutions, universities, uh, major places like the National Centre, government. And we also have a government like you know good bad great ugly and you know i certainly don't always say nice things about the feds even on this very podcast that but uh, this federal government is dedicated to the issue for the first time in history no other federal government has done that liberal or conservative and and that shows you that that uh, indigenous peoples involved in institutions voting in being involved in the affairs of the state uh, is working it's demanding change. And it's also demanding change of everyday Canadians who are aware of the issue, cognizant, and want to take action. You know, there was a poll that took place to say that, you know, the majority of Canadians know that there's a problem. They know that they want some reconciliation to happen in their lifetime. They just don't know how to do it. And you know, an orange shirt is not enough. A territorial acknowledgement is not enough. Finding out where children are, who are those children in the, in the graves, is is enough it is a part of that journey and it's going to be something that we need to do in the future if we're to in any way uh so-called you know scare quotes uh turn the page on Mm -hmm. this issue well um the most that that you and i can do right now uh through this medium and through the newspaper is uh remind the people who are in a decision-making capacity that we're watching and and in fact i think there is a large 
community of people, a population in the country, indigenous and non-indigenous, that are waiting and watching, and you know, to see the right things get done. Um, I think we're going to wrap up on that note, and uh, as we always do, we're going to thank uh, Adam Glenn, CJ, and you. You know, we've been here now for a couple weeks, and. Uh, and this is staff Truth be here. told, we've moved in and taken that bloody place over. But <laughs> we actually uh, there's a there's a broadcaster doing a show, and literally they they wait for us to leave the studio. So just this the the dedication that CJNU staff Adam. Uh, the great people here, uh, we just feel like a million bucks in the ways that we're treated. And, yeah. and uh, the fact that we, you know, all hours of the day bringing our guests in and, and doing the editing. And I mean, we even gave them a very short turnaround to edit the episode for episode two and was able to turn it around just in a few hours. So way to go, CJ and you. And, and of course, all of our colleagues at the Free Press, Paul Simin, who we would not be here unless uh, he dedicated resources and time to support us and, and gave us time to do this. And, uh, you know, everybody, our families too, you know, our families that let us uh, come down to the studio here and uh, miss out on shoveling snow. Yeah, well, I mean, Adam and I were talking about this ahead of time. Like we, uh, uh, you know, honest, because listeners, listener uh, may not know, but we do a lot of our recording on the weekends very early in the morning, 7, 7.30 in the morning. And uh, not to worry about whether or not it's affecting uh, my marriage or Adam's marriage, because both of our partners are extremely glad to take over the whole bed when we get out early on Saturday morning. <laughs> so it's like they have their best sleep of the whole week when we go out early to do podcasts. My cat says the same. <laughs> God yeah. willing, back at you, hopefully in a week. <laughs> All right, miigwech, man. Yeah.